There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the History of England, episode 30, Henry I, Barons, Warfare and Wales. Last week we got to the point where we'd been through most of Henry's impact on England itself, plus we did a bit of scurrous gossip masquerading as history. Now Henry's reign has always been described as remarkably peaceful, and so it was, for England. But it wasn't so peaceful for Normandy and for the edges of Henry's empire. So this week we're going to look at how Henry established his own power base and controlled his barons, but then we're going to look briefly at the relationship with Wales and Scotland, and then given that we're then going to go into a particularly conflict-strewn period of English history, we'll have a general catch-up about where warfare is. And then finally we'll make a start on Henry's struggle to hold on to Normandy. I hope that sounds OK, and then next week I promise you we'll see the end of Henry and put him into his grave. So first of all, let's talk a bit about Henry's relationship with the men who'd fight alongside him in Wales and Normandy, his barons. Henry has a reputation for spending his time trying to find ways to beat his barons up. And while this reputation isn't really considered to be entirely accurate, there's still a large element of truth in it. I did have a brief exchange at one point on Twitter with Kim about the merits of the Norman kings. Kim's view was that the Norman kings were to be admired because they gave strong leadership. And this is, you have to say, absolutely the case with Henry. He knew very well that the system the Normans had implemented in England relied on a very firm king, since the feudal barons, with their knights and safe behind their castle walls, were always surprisingly willing and able to raise the standard of revolt. Noble revolt was a formal affair, a renouncing of the homage that had been given. And it had a name, diffidatio, and was the concept of the subject's right to resistance against unjust leaders and laws. However, despite this, Henry can hardly be called anti-baronial. Of course, it does look a bit that way, since it just so happens that at the start of his reign, Henry, through the war with Robert, broke many of the greatest baronial families that ruled England in the period immediately after the conquest. Families like the Fitzosmonds, Montgomery and Belem, Mortain, Mowbray and Ur. And the chronicler Odoric Vitalis said that Henry was an implacable enemy to the disloyal, scarcely ever pardoning those who were proved guilty without punishment in body, honour or cash. And yes, Henry is very firm with his barons and takes immediate action, such as his summary treatment, for example, of the Welsh marcher lord Philip de Brose, who he throws in jail for two years in 1110 before giving his lands back once he's sure that Philip knows who the boss is. But essentially it's not that Henry sought to reduce the powers of the baronial class per se, He certainly makes sure they know their place, but he didn't really make any great innovations to the basis of the relationship. All that essentially happens is that Henry replaced a number of key conquest families with his own supporters. These include the men who had supported him back in the difficult days of his accession, notably the Bowman family in the form of two brothers, Robert and Henry. 
Then he raises up his own family, for example, two of his illegitimate sons, Robert of Caen and Reginald. The former acquires a lot of land in western England and the marches and becomes the Earl of Gloucester, and Reginald becomes the Earl of Cornwall. Another significant member of this family that he builds up was a chap called Stephen of Blois. Stephen was his nephew, the third son of his sister Adela. Stephen's elder brother Theobald became the Count of Blois. And Stephen, of course, as third son, could expect pretty little. So his mother sent him over to the English court when he was young in the hope that he'd catch the eye of the king. And this he did with spectacular success because it seems that Stephen was a pretty engaging man, with a facility for striking out friendships. A blizzard of land and honours followed. Stephen acquired the fiefs of Eye and Lancaster in England, the county of Mortain in Normandy after the form of William of Mortain at Tunchbry, and then in 1118, Henry arranged for Stephen's brilliant marriage to Matilda. Matilda was the daughter of the Count of Boulogne, and therefore was eventually to bring this inheritance to Stephen also. I imagine that Henry felt not only family loyalty, but felt that his own family was more likely to support his heirs. In Stephen's case, he was of course to be sadly mistaken. The other significant thing to mention is that already in Henry's reign, we can begin to see the first little signs of the decay of feudalism in England. Because in peaceful England, unlike war-torn France and Normandy, the fundamental driver for the development of feudalism was now gone, i.e. the war and turbulence that drove men to look for the protection of a lord or a king, and the need to organise a society entirely around a warrior military caste. The signs are small, but they are there. So do you remember scootage? Scootage is the money that a landholder can pay instead of doing military service. And we see much, much more of that now. There are also signs that some other feudal dues, such as castle guard, for example, become less urgent and much more laxly applied. Essentially what was going on here was that all these feudal Jews were in the process of becoming a one-way taxation system, with all the advantage coming on the king's side. And Generally what was happening was that the warmth and the need had gone out of the relationship between the king and his barons, i.e. that feeling of the king and his war leaders defending their lands and their people against the world. And without that feeling of solidarity, the barons were beginning to fret under the king's yoke, which didn't seem to them to offer much reward. So the summary, as far as I see it, is that Henry is no more anti-baronial than any sensible Norman king should be. It's just that the struggle for supremacy with Robert in the early days of his reign gave him the chance to get rid of a whole load of well-established barons with suspect loyalties and replace them with his own men. Once noble revolt turned wholesale, of course, as Stephen was to find out, the whole thing became an absolute nightmare. Because, as we mentioned last week, warfare in this period very much favours defence over attack, and getting into a castle was no easy matter. The last time we had a general update on warfare was back in Viking times and the Battle of Hastings, as I remember, so it is surely time for an update. There is, incidentally, before I go on, a quite superb book that you all need to read that redefined this subject by a bloke called Philip de Contamine. War in the Middle Ages is what it's called, and it's from the mid-80s. It put right so many of the myths about early medieval warfare. So we've already covered the fact that set-piece battles were rare. They were immensely risky. No competent commander would risk it unless they were absolutely sure of victory. And it's pretty unusual to find two of those at the same time. After all, one of them's going to turn out to be wrong. The other thing we've already alluded to is the fact that the idea that battles were exclusively events where hordes of ill-disciplined knights on horseback charge at each other is just as wrong. It was equally common for the armoured knight to be dismounted and to fight on foot along with the infantry soldier with a section held back for cavalry. 
The heavily armoured knights stiffen the line of more lightly armed foot soldiers. Soldiers probably armoured only in leather and armed with a pike, spear or halberd. It also showed much greater commitment and helped morale. Basically, those knights couldn't just naff off at the first sign of trouble on those big horses. And at Tarn Spry, as we've already seen, the team that won was not the side that did the big, glorious, crusader-like cavalry charge. Although I must admit it was probably the counter-cavalry charge that won it, but only after that infantry line of Henry's had held firm. There are very few new arms or armour, though, in the 12th century. What we saw at Hastings is pretty much it, with a few tweaks. So, for example, far more people had swords than in the days of Anglo-Saxon England, when the sword was a really exclusive symbol of lordship. Armour changes slightly as well. The hauberk, or male shirt, is shortened, and a pair of male breeches worn to cover the legs, instead of having a very long hauberk. The helmet becomes more conical and has more protection than it used to for the face, and this ends up with this big square all-over helm, which appears early in the 13th century. This is one of the trends that leads to the development of heraldry, because people can't recognise each other anymore because their face is getting more and more covered up. The main weapon of the horseman is the lance, ten foot long and used overarm, underarm or couched. The shock charge with couched lance is not the only way cavalry fought. Just as often, they're riding up to the infantry lines, holding the lance overarm and jabbing it downwards on the foot soldiers. We have both crossbow and longbow in use, as indeed there was at the Battle of Hastings. Both of these weapons have advantages and disadvantages. Famously, the longbow has a massive range, an enormous rate of fire, with something like six arrows or even ten arrows being fired a minute in the thick of battle. The longbow has great accuracy and great range, although not both at the same time. Of course, we think of the longbow, or I think of the longbow, as a weapon of the 14th and 15th centuries of the victories of Cressy, Poitiers and Agincourt. But the first surviving longbow actually apparently dates from 2600 BC. And the Battle of the Standard in 1138 is our first example of a battle that owes an awful lot to the existence of the longbow. But the problem was that learning to use the longbow effectively is a lifetime job, as shown by this famous quote from the late 15th century. My yeoman father taught me how to draw, how to lay my body in my bow, not to draw with strength of arms as divers other nations do. I had my bows brought to me according to my age and strength, as I increased in them, so my bows were made bigger and bigger. For men shall never shoot well unless they be brought up to it. The crossbow, on the other hand, had a similar range and actually hit the target with more force than the longbow. It had more kinetic energy. And it could be used after a week of training. Its problem, of course, was its pathetic rate of fire. So as a result, commanders used both longbowmen and crossbowmen in their armies at the same time. So there's also this implied or explicit view that training in medieval warfare was non-existent or just a bit rubbish. Again, this is harsh. It's quite clear that a coordinated cavalry charge required considerable training, and the tournament would to an extent develop from the training sessions that medieval knights and their households were expected to have. And the same is true of tactics and formations. Medieval armies were not simply a mess of men knocking each other about. There was a clear structure. Each knight worked in groups called conroys, which were usually multiples of five, and 25 to 50 was traditional. Each conroy became a well-integrated unit of men who trained and lived together. Numbers of these conroys would be formed into an army. The traditional formation of the army was in three battles, 
i.e. a centre left and right, and as the army marched in column formation, it would be organised into these three units. So the vanguard, main body and rearguard, when they arrived at the battlefield, those three units would then automatically convert into the three battles, centre left and right. Those battles were of mixed structure very often, so they had infantry, they had armoured knights interspersed with archers and crossbowmen. Cavalry might be used in the iconic charge, but it was by no means certain, and might often be of more use destroying an army that was already broken. It's also worth noting that the feudal knight was just one small part of the fighting population. Indeed, if you put all the feudal Jews in England together, you get about 5,000 knights. You'll maybe recall that Henry's arrangement with Flanders last week, where he recruited 1,000 cavalry in one fell swoop for 500 quid. A rather more effective way of doing things you'd think. Here again, not a vast amount has changed since Harold Godwinson's day. The most important and professional section of a lord's or king's army would be his household troops, just like those Huskarls on Senlac Hill. These guys might be feudal levies, with a bit of land to pay their way, or they might be out-and-out mercenaries. And then there are those out-and-out mercenaries who would form a core part of any medieval army. In particular, we heard of mercenaries from Wales and Brittany, Flanders and the overpopulated Brabant. They were as feared and hated by the populations they terrorised as they are at any time in history. Then there was one other source of knights. Henry was given to recruiting knights not only by giving them land, but by giving them a pension. It meant on the one hand that he could recruit knights from outside his kingdom on a feudal basis, but mercenary vassals, like out-and-out mercenaries, could be a bit unreliable, because they were available for the highest bidder. OK, so let's go back to that central point that set battles were rare. Rather than set battles, you tend to hear about two things, wasting and castles. Now by wasting, I mean the sort of stuff that mainly fills the chronicles about war at this time, and is the most common form of warfare, laying waste by burning houses and crops, driving off livestock, taking any treasure, that sort of thing. Since your enemy was as often as not safe behind their castle walls, a bit of wasting was the obvious way to fill your time. It had the benefit of removing the food needed by your enemy to maintain their army, and it had the potential to tempt the enemy to come out and take you on. After all, while you were wasting a lord's land, they can hardly claim to be fulfilling their feudal duty, i.e. of protecting their people. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And so we come to the castle, which is of course the biggest change from the warfare of the Anglo-Saxon period. Over the last 50 years, they've sprung up all over England like mushrooms, and some of them are now even beginning to be converted into stone. Medieval man finds them very difficult indeed to deal with. There were a number of tactics available to the 12th century general. So here's a quick rundown of the besiegers' toolkit. Number one, batter the walls down. There were siege engines at this time, but the first mention of a trebuchet doesn't come until the start of the 13th century and the main function of the machines of the time seems to have been to scare the enemy or relieve the boredom with a bit of noise, rather than cause any real damage to the fabric of a castle. When it arrives, 
The trebuchet will be significantly more powerful than the machines available in the 12th century. And then of course there's also the battering ram to have a go at the castle gates with. Number two, mining. The idea was to dig a hole under the castle walls, keeping the tunnel under the wall up with wooden braces. Then everybody comes out and you burn the braces so that the tunnel collapses, causing subsidence in the soil above, taking the wall above it down as well. This always sounded to me the best option, but even with this there was the danger of countermining, where the opposition did their own tunnel under your tunnel and do exactly the same thing of taking it down. And of course, if the castle was built on rock, it just isn't an option. Number three, chemical and biological warfare, i.e. trying to poison the castle's water supply by chucking dead bodies into it. The problem tended to be that the water supply wasn't always accessible, or the castle might have their own cistern to store fresh water. Interesting enough, Greek fire also makes an appearance in England. In 1194, there's a reference at Nottingham. Four, the good old traditional storm. Charge at the walls with ladders or roll siege towers up to the walls and just try to overwhelm the garrison by force of numbers. It's expensive of men though, and if you had 50 castles to take, it would be a surefire way to lose your own kingdom. Five, psychological warfare. One old favourite was to find a relative of the castle owner and threaten them with mutilation, death or some other kind of disfiguration. We saw William the Conqueror and Rufus use that one really effectively. But you'd better be prepared to follow through. People quickly got to know that King Stephen was far too nice to do it. When John Marshall's son William was dangled in front of his castle on a siege engine, John calmly remarked that he had plenty more where that one came from. So either he knew Stephen wasn't going to follow through, which he didn't, or he simply didn't want to pay the boy pocket money anymore. Number six, the siege. This is of course the most common of all tactics, starving the castle out. If you've got the patience, this is the most effective, but by no means a sure fire winner. Some sieges last up to six months, and in addition, the longer it took, the more likely it was that a relief army would arrive. And in fact, a fair proportion of the battles that do take place are actually between a besieging army and a relief force. As you sat outside your castle, you were likely to get hit by the defender's biggest weapon, disease. Dysentery, or camp fever as it was known, was a major killer and could quickly decimate an army. And number seven, be clever. If you could trick your enemy, all well and good. Sending the cavalry ahead to break into a castle that thinks you're miles away, or pretending to be on the castellan side, all perfectly fair game, and very nice when it happened. So given that sieges could be so protracted, your Norman king knew full well that while the odd flare-up was fine, a wholesale baronial revolt could easily get out of hand. The two Williams and Henry were therefore absolutely ruthless in their firm control of their barons, and actually in Stephen's reign we'll see he did a pretty good job too. So that's brought us up to date with warfare, and now let's go and have a look at what's happening in Wales. In the last episode about William Rufus, we heard about the revival of the independent Welsh kingdoms, when they stepped back from the brink of extinction. Henry's interest in Wales was as limited as Rufus's was, it was basically, dear Wales, Keep nice and quiet so I can concentrate on Normandy. Thanks, yours sincerely, Henry Rex. Henry had suffered at the start of his reign from the power of the Welsh Marcher Lords when the Montgomery family in the form of Robert of Belem had used his power against him on the side of Curtos. As far as Henry was concerned, this was therefore killing two birds with one stone time. Keep Wales quiet and continue the job of promoting the power of his own lords and nobles. One of the big winners 
was a man called Gilbert Fitch Richard, another of those nobles who had supported him when he took the throne. Gilbert was given Pembroke in the far southwest of Wales, and his brother Walter was given Chepstow in the southeast. Their family would become known as the Declares after their caput or head estate in Suffolk, which was given to them by the Conqueror following their involvement in the 1066 invasion. The Declares would become one of the leading families of the medieval period, major lords in England, Wales and Ireland, until the male line dies out in 1314. But their name survives in places such as Clare College and Clare Bridge in Cambridge. What Henry does with Gilbert is actually pretty typical of the marches. Gilbert comes to the king looking for riches and power. Henry basically says, look, there's this nice bit of land in the west of Wales you can have. And maybe Gilbert falls to his knees and gives Henry heartfelt thanks, who knows. But before he leaves, Henry might casually mention that there's actually a Welsh prince who is still in possession of said lands, and so Gilbert's going to go and have to take them for himself. And in fact, this is what Gilbert does in fact do, conquering an area of land in Ceredigion. The other big winner was Henry's illegitimate son Robert, the Earl of Gloucester. But there were three other smaller winners. By the time he died, Henry could happily view the Welsh marches and know that most of the major marcher lords were his men, the loyal recipients of his patronage and favour. Henry was pretty effective in maintaining the Norman hold on South Wales. In particular, he copied his brother's transplanting policy, taking a group of Flemings and putting them into Pembrokeshire. The Flemings were probably mercenaries and soon earned themselves a reputation as a brave and sturdy people, mortal enemies of the Welsh with whom they engage in endless conflict, according to the chronicler Gerald of Wales. However, the Highland Welsh kingdoms of Powys and Gwynedd were also well able to hold their own throughout the period and they maintained their independence and they caused the Norman barons enough trouble so that Henry was twice forced to come down in force to get them back in line. The Welsh princes behaved themselves when he was in town, promised to be good in the future, and then kept doing exactly what they had been before as soon as he'd gone. Relations between Scotland and England, meanwhile, were as peaceful as they get during the period. King David was Henry's brother-in-law, and an English landholder, and a fan of Anglo-Normans. He followed a pretty consistent policy of settling Anglo-Normans in Scotland, including one Robert the Bruce in Annandale. So the big centre of conflict was without doubt Normandy. We left this bit of the story in 1106 with Henry's victory at Tanch Bry, supported by a pile of local counts normally considered to be mortal enemies of a combined Anglo-Norman kingdom. He could continue to count on the support of some of those. The Count of Brittany, for example, was Henry's vassal and the husband of one of his illegitimate daughters. The Count of Blois, to the west, was also consistent in his support of Henry. There were a couple of reasons for this. Count Theobald was Henry's nephew, the son of Henry's sister Adela. His younger brother was Stephen of Blois, who, as we've seen, did very well from Henry. So look, Theobald was family. Not always a safe recommendation, but in this case it seemed to work. The other reason was a bit more strategic. Blois lay right next to the Ile de France, and a powerful French king was a bad thing for Blois. So it was a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend but the rest of the counts began to wake up to the fact that they'd really boobed. After the party of Tanch Bry came the hangover. I did what last night? I fought on whose side? Baldwin of Flanders to the north was now resolutely hostile to Normandy. Folk of Anjou felt just the same way, and in 1110 he also acquired Maine, the traditional battleground between Normandy and Anjou, and for some time past owing homage to the Norman duke. 
Folk was having none of this, and he refused to do the necessary, and once again the Normans had a malignant neighbour to the south. And then, of course, the big boy was the French king. He at least could go around saying, I told you so, since his opposition had never wavered, and he'd never got involved in Tanchebray on the wrong side. The king at this time was Louis VI, called Louis the Fat. Henry had two other worries. One was the evil Robert of Belem, who unaccountably Henry had let off after Tanchebray, an act of generosity that did not improve Belem's loyalty to Henry one tiny little bit. The other was William Cleto, the only son of Robert Curtos. The word Cleto, incidentally, is a Latin term that had pretty much the same meaning as Atheling, a man of royal blood. Born in 1102, Cleto was trouble in the making for Henry because of his claim on Normandy. After Tanchebray, Henry had given Cleto into the guardianship of one Helias of Saint-Saëns. Helias was a firm supporter and son-in-law of Robert Curtos through one of his illegitimate daughters. The whole idea at the time was that by giving Cleto into the care of a man so obviously loyal to Robert, Henry could not be accused of having any idea of wrongdoing towards the boy. The problem was, of course, that this became a serious drawback when it came to that time when Henry began to consider that a bit of wrongdoing towards the boy was just exactly what was required. We can hardly assume that Henry was going to do what he'd done to Conan of Rouen and chuck him off the top of the tallest tower he could find, but he'd realised that at least he'd better keep this boy close to him so that he could see what was going on, on the keep your enemies close principle. So in 1110, Henry sent a bunch of nice-looking blokes down to Helis's place to suggest that the boy should come and save the delights of his court, as befitted a nephew of the king. Fortunately for Henry, Helis was away, but unfortunately for Henry, the event clearly didn't come as a big surprise, and the household was prepared, and they smuggled the boy out of the castle and off to where Helis was. Together they then hightailed it to the nearest friend they could find, who was none other than Robert of Belen. Probably not Henry's happiest moment, though he was able to vent a little bit of rage by confiscating Helias's land and resolving that Belen would be next. Helias's lands were given to William of Warren. But at the tender age of eight, there can be little doubt that William Cleto was not going to be Henry's best buddy. He would grow up into a charming and well-liked man, who was always going to be useful as a tool for Henry's enemies. Henry deserves a reputation as a master diplomat, despite this little hiccup, and he continued his mastery of the diplomatic game through that old favourite marriage. Henry used his illegitimate children with great skill, and had in addition two legitimate children to play with, Matilda the eldest, born in 1102 and heir to the throne, William Atheling, who was born a year later in 1103. In 1109, Henry V, the Holy Roman Empire, asked for Matilda's hand in marriage. In 1114, when Matilda was just 12, they were formally married, but by 21 she was to be already widowed. The marriage was immensely prestigious for Henry, but he would also have hoped that with a friend on France's eastern flank, this had to help him in his struggles with France. In fact, it was to prove a bit of a damp squib in all ways, but it did give England some kudos. So now the battle lines were drawn and the scene was set for the struggle for control in northern France and much of the rest of Henry's reign would be a long, hard, drawn-out struggle to retain his dukedom while the other half of his empire had to pay the bills. But we'll talk about all of that next week and talk about the major failing that can be laid at Henry's door, his failure to secure a reliable and painless succession that would lead in the end to anarchy. So thanks to all of you for listening and for all of your comments over the week. I'm not sure I should draw attention to JL's comment, though as an example of double entendre it's pretty good. 
Thank you, Gopal, for your kind words. And Chris, thanks for all your questions. I will at some point get round to answering them. And as you all know, I do love questions and comments. David is having a problem voting for me on the European Podcast Award. Not a moral problem, but a technical one. So I've slightly updated the entry on my website to try and make it a bit easier. And one more thing before I go. A number of you have been kind enough to put ratings and make comments on the podcast on iTunes. It does make a big difference to me to see these go up. And of course, it also makes the podcast much more visible. So if I can ask for two favours in as many weeks, I'd be really grateful if you could find some time over the week to go and add your ratings and comments. Unless, of course, you think the show's rubbish, in which case don't bother. Anyway, enough brother now. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.